Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We are also a part of the Corporate Compliance Insights family, and those are two great places that you can get information. And today we have a slightly different type of GWIC. We have a great waltzer in compliance and a great gentleman in compliance. For so many of our listeners, that means you need no further introduction. Joe Murphy is here. Joe is one of the architects of our profession for ethics and compliance professionals. Literally, he's on the nat- one of the National Law Journal's 50 Governance and Risk and Compliance Trailblazers and Pioneer and co-authored the first book ever written on compliance. Currently, Joe is the editor of Compliance and Ethics, Ideas and Answers. There's so much more that he can tell you about, including his CCO role, which is the Chief Cha-Cha Officer, or as of this past week, a Chief Charleston Officer at Dance Haddonfield. So with that, Joe... Welcome. And for the few people who might not know you, talk a little bit about you. Thank you, Lisa. And I'm very happy to to be on your program. And yes, I've been doing this for quite a long time. I first got interested in elements of compliance when I started working in-house way back in 1976. And I was an antitrust lawyer. And part of what I was doing was antitrust compliance, which interested me. Then somewhat later, I did some things on FCPA compliance, and I started to notice the similarities in this type of function. And that really led me to think about this and explore it much more, which is how I've been able to do this for decades rather than just years. But I do find it's it's a great profession, and I find the people in it are really dedicated to doing the right thing. So I'm very happy to to be on board with you doing this. And yes, I'm also always willing to talk about dance Anyone, anytime anyone wants to approach that subject. Yeah, we might mention it again. I can't promise that we won't. I think it's more likely than not. Uh, but with that, can you talk a little bit about your compliance and ethics ideas and answers, the weekly newsletter? I'm now a subscriber, not just an advocate of it. So can you talk about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how it's going so far? Sure. My role as an editor in dealing with a publication goes way, way back. When I was at law school at the University of Pennsylvania, I was the managing editor of the law review, which meant I was responsible for the final proofreading of most of the things that appeared there. And this was back in the day when they had letterpress and you got things in long galleys. And so I learned to read to look for typos, but I was also involved in publishing. And then later on, when I started in the compliance field, and I was working with Professor Sigler at at Rutgers, we decided to put out a quarterly publication called the Corporate Conduct Quarterly. And we started this about 1991 with the sentencing guidelines. We subsequently merged into another publication called Ethicos, and ultimately we transferred that to SCCE. And then at SCCE, I was the editor of uh, of their magazine for about 10 years. I published a monthly column. And I figured at the point I got to 10 years and 100 columns, that was probably enough. More recently, on the advice of Roy Snell, I focused very much on LinkedIn. 
And one of the things I really like about LinkedIn is you get immediate responses, immediate feedback. I love doing the columns for SCCE, but when you work in a written publication, you don't get the same kind of feedback. And then recently I saw that LinkedIn had created the ability to do newsletters. And I thought that would be a neat thing to do. And also my long-term friend, Jeff Kaplan, he and I were looking for a project we could do together. And I saw this and I thought, there's some real opportunity here. Now, what I've seen in a lot of LinkedIn newsletters is they're not really publications. It's just people who used to post, who now post as a newsletter. And I thought, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to do an actual publication. We got Rebecca Walker, who is one of the great women in compliance. She's and been again. Adam, and Adam Balfour. And Adam publishes a comment every week on LinkedIn. I don't know. I might have been able to do that 20 or 30 years ago, but that's beyond my my pale right now. But anyway, the four of us got together. We retained a fellow in the UK who's excellent at pulling these types of things together, Simon Kingsnorth. And we decided, let's do it. And since Adam publishes every week, we thought, ah, let's do it every week. And we also thought when we, let's say, request people to give us pieces, when you publish on a weekly basis, there's no deadline. If somebody gets us something to it this week and we like it, it can go out next week. If they don't get it to us for two months, then it goes in that issue. And we've had a pretty good start. We're already over 3,000 subscribers. It's great. And funny, now you're the third in that group. Jeff is not, has not been podcast, but Adam is also, we consider him a great gentleman of compliance and a dear a friend of the podcast and a personal friend for me as well. So you've got a great crew doing that. Really, I'm really, I personally am really enjoying it. So thanks for all the hard work. Uh, now I'm just going to talk, you, as you were talking earlier about from back in the day to now, you've seen this profession change and grow. And if you were to design an ideal chief compliance officer or chief compliance and ethics officer, what do you think are the key components to setting the stage for enroll up for success? I'm going to, and by the way, I should warn you, Lisa, sometimes I revert to being a politician. No matter what the question is, I answer the question I want to answer. That's okay. But, I want to hear what you want to say. But I'm going to say first, to me, one of the most important things for anyone who's going to become a compliance officer is to look at the issue of power, power. Consider that much, if not most, misconduct in organizations is a result of the use and abuse of power. If your job is to prevent that, you can't do that unless you have the independence and power. And in an organization, power comes from the top. If you're not positioned so you have unlimited access to the board of directors and an independent committee of the board, consider whether you really want that job or not. So I would say that's one of the first things I look for is empowerment. Do you have the ability to reach the board? And by the way, reaching the board doesn't mean you form, you call a formal session of the board. It's more that you're in a first name basis with the chair of the audit committee. You have lunch with this person. You email about different things. So if you need to say to this person, hey, Mary, the head of sales is getting ahead of herself on this kind of stuff. You can sit down and have a talk with the chair of the audit committee if you need to. Uh, because otherwise it makes it much more much more dangerous for you to be in that kind of position. 
And I would also say for somebody who wants to be the ideal compliance officer, I'd offer some advice on some things to focus on. One is a real simple point. Learn how to do public speaking. Learn it. It's not necessarily an inherent skill. It's something they should look into, maybe get coached on, study it. Second is learn how to be an active listener. And it's funny, the best definition I've heard of how people actually listen is while you're talking, they're taking the time to think about what they're going to say as soon as you stop talking. So learn how to engage with people, listen to them. If you've ever talked with a good investigator, for example, they'll know how to do this. And then a third point I would make is one that I picked up from doing the book on compliance entrepreneurship with the Christy Grant Hart and, and Kirsten Liston. And that is your network is your net worth. That is connecting with people, knowing people in the field is very important. And I remember when I was in-house, we had a, an industry group in telecommunications. And we sometimes joked about it being our support group because we would call one another. It would be like, am I crazy or is it them? And I used to tell people, the people in my company knew I was a team player. They just didn't know whose team I was playing on. So it's very important just from a personal point of view to have that network, also to exchange ideas and to be aware when opportunities occur. And the reality is that we trust people we know better than people we don't know. And so if I'm aware of an opening and I know you, you're one of the people I would think of for that. Or if I know of an opportunity, when I had the idea about the newsletter, my first thought was Jeff, because Jeff's a great writer. He's one of the early leaders in compliance. And I knew he was interested in this. Here's something I didn't do. I didn't contact anyone who I didn't know. I also know as a writer, and I've written tons of things, when someone writes to me about something I've written, they write intelligently, they've read it, and they have questions or they have commentary. I really like that. I'll relate to people for doing that. And it's surprising. You may see people who write all the time and think, wow, they're at the top of their game, but they still don't get that much feedback. And so a simple thing of communicating with someone about something that they wrote and engaging on an intelligent basis, maybe you do a little bit of research, you check the footnotes, that type of thing. That's a really good thing to do. So that's a couple of thoughts on this about starting out and where do you go and, and how do you position yourself? And one follow-on I'd have for that for positioning too is one thing about this community is people are usually amazingly welcoming for whatever kind of conversations or reaching out. I've never had an experience, and I'm not just talking about now, but even more junior in my career, if you reach out and ask questions to people or ask for their advice or experiences, people want to share. And the second point that you made me think of is really can help in our jobs. I say this a lot. Being a compliance officer can be lonely at times in your organization. Not a lot of us have so many extra resources. I like to find that place, except usually that means they've been through something fairly bad. But I also think we have a community where you can share in a way that's very different than a lot of other professions. We're not sales strategies. We're not doing that. You're helping people stay out of tr trouble or teaching best practices. So you can share codes of conduct and talk about what's in there. They're supposed to be seen. So I think things like that make it a really great community that not only is it your network 
your net worth that is going to help enhance, continue enhancing it be, when or whether you do or don't need things from them. Yeah, Lisa, that is so true. And one of the things I do, I'm an industry historian because I study things because I lived through them. And so I'd like to remind people of the origin of the sentencing guidelines. One of the key origins was what they did in the defense industry, where the major defense contractors got together and formed an organization to promote compliance. Now, it would always be nice if people did this because they woke up one morning and they felt like they should do something good. But of course, it's almost always because there's a major scandal and there's a terrible scandal in the defense industry. So they formed something called the Defense Industry Initiative. It was a networking group where they shared best practices. So when the sentencing guidelines were written up, in one of the provisions in the notes, it talks about what you have to do to get credit for your compliance program. And one of the things you have to do is be at least as good as industry practice. How do you find out what's industry practice? You network. So I would make the point that what you just said, Lisa, is not an accident. That was the way the field was intended from the beginning, that people would network and share best practices. And they definitely do. And I can just say your experience is the same as mine. Worldwide, people in the compliance and ethics field share ideas and share best practices and are looking to improve, looking to be more effective in what they're doing. So it's a wonderfully open field because of that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's one of my favorite reasons to do what we do is the community. And I think, like you said, we have the opportunity to really constantly better all of ourselves because of it as a result of that. Um, I'm going to change to a little bit of a different topic that's been coming up a little bit lately. And I just immediately thought I wanted your view on it, which is the Supreme Court. One thing that's come up is that they don't have a code of ethics. Other courts do. They don't. I mean, what is your thought about that? And I, particularly as we do this, we had the Justice Thomas, we just we found out he took a lot of different trips that may or may not, people may have their own opinions on this. So I think it's a really interesting time, and I was hoping to get your views on that. Okay. On Justice Thomas, I'll just say, I you know, when I deal with the compliance field, I tend to avoid political issues. Sure. And I think the bigger picture here is that the court didn't have an ethics program, but more to the point... The judiciary did not buy into compliance programs. Mm -hmm. Now, every organization other than three people at a cookie stand should have a compliance program because they're all human beings. And when the scandal occurred with Judge Kaczynski, I think it was on the Ninth Circuit, mm -hmm. the court's response was so textbook in terms of what not to do. First of all, it turns out there's a rule in the judiciary, supposedly a rule, that no matter what you did, if you resign, you're outside of the judiciary's reach. So as soon as Kaczynski resigned, they stopped the investigation. Nobody asked who knew. Could you imagine in a company if there was wrongdoing and the person who committed the wrongdoing dropped out and all of a sudden you just shut off the investigation? That's nonsense. You need to know what the root causes were. So instead of asking all of the judge's colleagues, did you know he was abusing People, did you know he was engaged in harassment? And I even heard that law professors who could refer their top graduates to Kaczynski would tell the student, look, this guy is such and such, he's what is worthwhile. But nobody spoke up. 
because and there was no root cause investigation. So what do they do? They go back to the old thing. Oh, we need a code of conduct. At least I gave a presentation at the SCCE conference in Phoenix this last year. And one of the things I did was I brought a magical code of conduct. It had lights. It had powers. All you had to do is put something in the code and everybody would follow it. There is no magical code. And there's no magical code for the judiciary. Just adopting a code of conduct is a minimum basic step they should do that they didn't do. And what typically happens with executives is they say, this doesn't apply to us because we're superhuman. We're ethical. It's only the workers who are the problem. And there's one of my favorite sayings about this is the big guys get in trouble and the little guys get ethics training. Yeah. And so clearly the Supreme Court should have a code of ethics. They should also have somebody responsible for administering this. And guess what? I'm sure the Supreme Court didn't think of this, but the judiciary issued a really cool set of standards on compliance programs. It's called the Sentencing Guidelines. Read your own stuff, guys. Apply your own lessons. The Supreme Court is just like any other organization. It also amazed me when they had that leak of the key abortion decision, the investigation didn't include the justices. Oh, sure. Could you picture a, an, an investigation in a major company where they said, well, we investigated the workers, but we don't investigate the top people. What? So I think the problem with the judiciary is they started down the wrong road with Kaczynski of worrying only about the workers when it's the top people who do this stuff. And so, of course, there should be a set of standards for the justices. And they should get together, they should focus on this and think through how you control it and step back just for a day, remind themselves that they may be justices, but they're not gods. And as I recall, one Supreme Court justice said, we're not final because we're right, we're right because we're final. And they say they should recognize every one of them is a human being. Every one of them has all the same emotions everybody else has. And they should have a standard and they should have a way of making sure that people follow it. Yeah. And I think as you're talking about that, it comes back to the whole idea. They're the top on this. If we're talking about tone from the top, that our, our, our most senior, you know, what you said, they're right because they're final. They don't have some of the same standards that the rest of us have and should have. But because if the belief is they should know to follow them, then how are we able to basically handle it, A, if they don't, or even find out? Yes. That's the point about a code of conduct is not magical. Yeah, they should have a code of ethics, but they also need to think through this sticky problem of how they enforce it and what they do. And I'm always nervous when you come to the the three different branches, I'm always nervous about one branch having too much control over the other. Yep. But the court can certainly come up with some standards, some rules, in some way that it's administered. And for example, it should be crystal clear that anytime there's an investigation, whoever is doing the investigation has full power to include the top, the justices, including the chief justice. Yeah. And interestingly enough, when we spoke, this makes me also think about law firms. Very few have chief compliance officers 
Uh, some have code of ethics, but there's similar to the Supreme Court, there's this expectation that because you're a lawyer, you quote unquote, know the law. Be law firms are more and more businesses. They're dealing with the same pressures. I think they too should be, th that what we've been talking about with the Supreme Court should also be applying to law firms generally. Oh, definitely. Remember the sentencing guidelines, the definitions from the federal statutes, which define organizations across the board. People talk about corporate crime. It's really organizational crime. Yeah. And so law firms clearly, I remember very early on, now we're talking early 90s. I remember once being at a conference where one of the speakers was a lawyer from a law firm. They were taking questions from the audience. And I raised my hand and said, what kind of compliance program do you have at your law firm? And my friend Ed Dower, I think it was, who was the head of the law school, said, okay, program's over, because they knew that the lawyer would not have an answer for that. And in fact, at SCCE, we gave an award one year for a significant-sized law firm that actually adopted a full-fledged compliance program. Some of the most creative things you'll ever hear, Lisa, are from organizations explaining why they don't need a compliance program. And law firms will say, oh, we have an ethics committee that deals with ethics issues. Fine. And does it deal with harassment? Does it deal with insider trading? Does it deal with all the other risks that any organization can be engaged in? So law firms need this as much as anyone else. And every, everyone who retains an outside law firm should ask them right at the beginning, does your have, firm have a compliance program? Does it have a compliance officer? Does it deal with incentives? Do you have a system for training your people? All the same things you would ask any other vendor or supplier or consultant. Absolutely. I think that it's just really important and it's interesting. I think it's a growing field as well for law firms and it can be a differentiator even more than that because of all the reasons you just said. I'm going to throw out another one too. If you're talking about organizations with compliance programs, um, one major area of misconduct is the higher ed industry, otherwise known as colleges and universities. And I'm just going to share one of the funniest ironies in our field in the scholarship side. Read any of the law review analysis of compliance and compliance programs. Any of these academics, they'll talk about all kinds of corporate crime. They never, ever talk about university crime as misconduct. As big a field as that is, they don't talk about it. Here's another thing that the academic writers never do. They never walk across the campus to their own compliance office and talk with the people there. So universities are a big one. And the one, one recent debacle was where you had Columbia University, I think one of, one of the schools there, lying about their numbers to US News, US News and World Report's evaluation of universities. And the answer was, oh, the US News system is unfair. And that, to me, it's like a kid gets caught cheating in a college class and he blames his professor. <laughs> anyway, that's an area that deserves a lot more attention is misconduct and crime in higher ed and in universities. Yeah, that makes sense. I, it amazes me that people aren't walking down the hall to talk to anybody who actually is, is doing compliance either. I think practical is important. And universities, they do have good compliance programs. If you're in an organization and you think you've got a lot of difficult risks and problems to deal with, just put your imagination to test at a major university. That is mind boggling.
And there are some really top, very sharp people in universities. In fact, most people know Guyton, who worked at Microsoft. Right before that, he worked at Penn. And when he decided to go from Penn to Microsoft, I said, oh, sure, you're looking for an easier job. (laughs) Because being the compliance officer and dealing with faculty members, for example, that's tough. Yeah, that is, it's a field. So with that, in terms of teaching and a kind of higher education, it's not the best segue I've ever had, but nonetheless, we can't go back to where we started talking about dancing and waltzing. And the ser- the reason I really want to talk about it is I just, I always love how energized you get and how much you share about ballroom dancing and sharing it. And I wanted to know how that's impacted you in terms of your life as a compliance architect and in the work that you do. Of course, I am big on the importance of humor. And I used to have a standard line. People would do my introductions. And I used to teach at the SEC academies and they do the introduction. And then I'd say, thank you, but you left out the most important thing in my CV. And then I would say, I'm the chief cha-cha officer of the Society of Dancing Compliance and Ethics Professionals. And a friend of mine in Australia, Bill D., in about sometime in the 1990s, decided we should form this organization of dancing compliance and ethics professionals. So we thought about it for 10 years, i.e. we never even thought about it. And then all of a sudden we decided, oh, let's do it. And so part of it is just relaxing, having fun. For a while in the SCC conferences, we always had a meeting of the Society of Dancing Compliance and Ethics Professionals. We defined a meeting as any time two or more compliance people are dancing together. I attended a meeting with you once. That was one of my first memories when I really started to feel like I was getting to know the community. I was about to leave some dinner. This is my Joe Murphy. And you grabbed me and we started dancing. So I attended a meeting. And one year at SCCE, we had Cynthia Cooper as one of our speakers. And she was the whistleblower at the Worldcom. And she'd written a book called Extraordinary Circumstances. At one point during that, there was dance music, and I gave her a lesson in how to do dancing. So when she signed my book, in addition to the usual things, she put, thank you for the dance lesson. That's awesome. And I will add one other thing. I actually did a dance step as part of a presentation. It was at a conference in Australia. And the Australian organization had come up with a code of conduct that I thought was weak. It wasn't much more than do good and avoid evil. And so I wanted to make a point about the purpose of a code. And so I had one of my friends, while I was giving my talk, we stopped the talk. I had one of my friends from the audience come up, a female friend. They played a little bit of the song In the Mood, which is a great swing dance. And we did a little bit of swing dance. And then I explained my purpose. I said, the purpose of a code of conduct should be the same as a lead in dance. The purpose of a lead is to make it so your partner can only do the right thing. So if I want you to turn a certain way, I'll have my hand going a certain way. And my point about a code was it can't just be do good and avoid evil and be nice and smile. It's got to have some specific things to it. So there's a couple of examples of how I've weaved dance into this. And I'll add, it's a wonderful escape. If you're spending a day working on compliance somewhere, I recommend go out dancing, real dancing, not with your hands in the air, but two people moving together to music. It's a wonderful thing for getting you to relax and forget about everything else. Yeah, I think it's really important in our profession to clear your mind and to have something 
like that, that you have to really focus while you're doing it. And there's music and all of that and to work with someone else. I think there's so much that can always be applied from those sorts of things. So before we close, I have to ask one other thing. What advice would you give to anyone, but particularly for young women starting out in compliance? I started my talk by talking about that a bit. And I would say, to go back to what I covered, I would say first, learn public speaking. You cannot underestimate how important that is. Whether you're at an office meeting or whether you're giving a talk, if you're at an office meeting and you're reading a text, you're not in the promotability list. Yeah. So master that, work on it, study it, learn how to do it. And for example, for a beginning person, I would say never, ever give a talk until you practiced it three times. If you can practice in front of a group, that's good. Practice in front of your spouse, that's good. Practice in front of your dog or your cat, but do it three times. I would recommend doing it in front of a mirror. Mm-hmm. A second is learning how to listen. That's a great skill when you do investigations. It's always a good skill. And I learned as an investigator, I would wonder why people would tell me stuff. They tell me stuff they shouldn't tell me. And the reason was I was listening. I was taking notes and I was asking them questions. And I realized that for most people, they can go through a whole day and no one actually listens to them. When you're there listening to people, you draw them out and they'll relate to you. And then my third piece about starting out is network. And you use a skill as a listener on how to network, the things I said about communicating with people. And there's also plenty of advice about this as well. I also recommend, I would say for for women particularly, I would recommend reading Send in the Elevator Back Down. I read, and I've read parts of it, and I read Rebecca Walker's story. And I know Rebecca is a consummate professional. And I was amazed about the concerns she had as being a woman in a group of in a group of men, because Rebecca is such a professional. And so it was really interesting insight for me to see that. And I think for any woman starting out, it's good for them to see that, hey, here's somebody at the top of their form. This is somebody you can look at and say, wow, I'd like to be Rebecca someday. And to see that she's going through the same, she went through the same things you went through. I think that's very helpful. We'll take you ending with a plug for the book. And I thank you for sending the elevator down for just your entire career for me and for others. So on behalf of Mary and of me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 